Um, and occasionally I get to preach. I'm happy to be here. I love preaching. So I'm a little under the weather. Uh, so lower your expectations. Um, and interesting enough, today's about suffering. So if you're here and you're suffering, you're in the right place. God has ordained for you to be here. If you are here and you're going to go through suffering, you're in the right place. If you're here and you need to give advice to people suffering, you're in the right place. So um, this has been a very interesting passage to study. I love studying theology. I love getting ready to preach. This has been interesting because suffering has been smack dab in my face in the middle of this, not with myself, but it's also kind of shown a spotlight on just how poorly I have been counseling people through suffering. So hopefully this is a benefit to you. It has been to me just studying it. So um, about five days ago, my wife got an email from her cousin in Colorado, and it says, Our daughter Robin, pregnant and due on October 1st, and her husband Brian were informed on Saturday that your, their 8-year-old son Braden was diagnosed with leukemia. This form has a pretty good remission rate, but the treatment is very long and very painful. Nancy and I, that's the parents of these folks, flew to Colorado on Sunday to help with the other three kids. Robin and Brian are devastated, especially given that they've already lost two children before. There's a lot of why being asked. So here's what I hope at the end of this thing, is that whether it's Brian and Robin or yourselves personally, or your kids or your parents, whoever it is that's suffering, you would have a good answer for why. Now let me say this because some of us are just not smart like myself. Just because you have the right answer doesn't mean you have the right time. So let me just clarify so nobody does anything dumb or crazy. When the time is right and somebody wants an answer, you now have an answer based off this passage here. So I hope that's what you get out of it. I've been completely blessed by this all week, just studying and really wrapping my head around suffering and just especially in this passage because Romans, if you notice, has been this big theological undertaking. Paul spends three chapters telling you you're a sinner. He's used every word imaginable to tell you that you are a sinner. And then midway through three, he flips and he says, but there's, a good, there's some good news. And then he tells you this good news. And now we're getting to the point in Romans where if you're following along and you're listening, you should be saved. If not, you haven't been listening. So you're a sinner. You need a savior. Here's your savior. Receive him. Boom, and now we're starting off. Last week, Luke started, but chapter 5 is really the start of, now that you're a Christian, how should life look? So, does that make sense? And what's super interesting, what's kind of challenged me the most through all this, is why is suffering right here? And one of the big things I've come to the conclusion is that everybody has a very, very weak theology of suffering. If you're not a Christian, you don't use the word theology. Everyone has a very weak view or purpose for suffering. So I just kind of walked through, and I was trying to think through how various people talk about suffering or give you advice in suffering. So we have the non-Christian view. So you're non-Christian. Jesus isn't yours yet. Church isn't your thing. You are strictly going by this world and everything you can see, and you're finding hope in the here and now. Where is your hope in the midst of suffering? So I went to the top spiritual leader of today, Oprah, to find out. It's kind of a joke, but I was curious. I was kind of bouncing around online. Okay, what's the advice that people are getting if they reject the word of God? 
So I went to Oprah's website, it's a beautiful website, it should be, and I googled suffering, and this is the first thing that came up on this lady who pretty much has the hearts and minds and souls of a lot of our people, and they hang on every word she says. And here's her top article when it comes to suffering. It's a guy who's trying to teach you how to meditate through suffering. So those of you who are suffering, there's pain, your spouse isn't a believer, your kids are sick, your parents are sick, you're sick, financially you don't know how you're going to make it, take a deep breath and follow along with me. Here's her advice. Find a comfortable seat with your back upright and your eyes closed. Done. Settle your body and bring your focus to the natural flow of your breath as it enters and leaves your body. Just watch your breath as you become quiet and relaxed. Now become aware of the world around you and visualize the ground beneath you and the sky above and all of nature in her many forms. Become aware of the flow of nature, how it is always shifting and changing. One minute there is sunshine, another there is a storm. One minute there are leaves and flowers, another branches are empty. The tides and the moon are constantly waxing and waning here and then gone. As you focus on this eternal movement of life, let trust grow in your heart and that all things are as they were meant to be. If suffering arises, label it as suffering, but do not identify with it as your suffering. It's the suffering of the universe that you're just in the flow of. If joy arises, label it as joy, then let life live through you. When you are ready, take a deep breath, gently open your eyes, and smile. My kid's dying, I now feel better, because I have a breathing technique. That's about the best the world is going to offer. Just a really cute, PhD-backed way of distracting yourself from the actual suffering going on in your life. So the non-Christians in the room, I'll just say this as clearly as I can. When suffering comes into your life, it's just a reminder that you don't actually have hope. You can go to Oprah and she's going to tell you, here's some breathing techniques. And that's just how nature flows. This is the best the world has to offer. Billion dollar industry, the top article on suffering tells me to breathe. My kid has cancer, and you tell me to go sit in a room and breathe. Should make us sick. But here's where I've been convicted, because that's not me, I'm a Christian. But even the Christian's view of suffering is weak. It's limited, it's kind of you know, spread out all over. There's not a real good cohesive way to talk about suffering. So here's the Christian view of suffering. You got a slide? And the first one is this. It's largely a lot of future promises. So there's a great passage in Corinthians. I mean, just an unbelievable passage. It talks about this light momentary affliction you're going through. So you're going through stuff. It's a light momentary affliction. Why? Because you're being prepared for an eternal weight of glory. So someone going through suffering, I can offer them future promises. Revelation 21, 22, every tear will be wiped away, life will be good. There's an eternal weight of glory for you in the future. So that's good. Don't think I'm going to go through these and say, stupid, those of you who use this, you're an idiot. I'm saying it's just limited and it's missing a big chunk of how we should actually suffer. So a lot of Christian theology is future promises, and that's good, but it's not the whole story. Here's the other way Christians kind of limit their focused, outward-focused promises. What do I mean by that? You are going through suffering for the people around you. 
Paul says, I embrace my sufferings for your sake. Here's what, in the book of Revelation, there's martyrs. So people who've gone into lands that are hostile to the gospel, and they go in those lands and they give up their life. They suffer for others to come to Jesus. That would be an outward-focused promise through suffering. Here's one that's big in this church. So I have a couple kids. My wife's pregnant again. We have never, ever struggled to get pregnant. We just haven't. We get pregnant, and we eat, and then we repeat. That's kind of our life. <laughs> That's really about all we do. It's wonderful. And when I first came here, I was in RC, and I was kind of flippant about kids because I hadn't been around church people having kids much because it was my first, and I was just kind of complaining about Elijah. Like, oh, I should be, oh, remember the days when Elijah wasn't here? And this guy said, I wish I had that problem. And he wasn't trying to jab me. He was sincerely saying, I wish the Lord would have given me the problem that you have, namely a kid. So here's what suffering does for others in our life. It just creates a better community. When others suffer, we get better together. He says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, and we get better as a group when we have people in our midst suffering. Outward focus. Those of you who are struggling with kids, I know it's no consolation, but just don't. I'm a better dad because some of you struggle to have kids because I appreciate it more. I just see it more as a gift as opposed to an obligation. So that's one view. It's a good view, but it's not the whole picture. And the last one is a non-practical theology. So my go-to as I've kind of gone through this passage and I've tried to think back to every time people have been suffering, my go-to line is God's on the throne. It's true. It's good. It's short. It's easy to say. So Aubrey calls me in the middle of her day, three to four times. You want to know what Elijah did? Guess where Roman is right now? In the toilet. Can you? <laughs> and I say, God's on the throne, babe. Got to get back to work. <laughs> it's true. It's good. It sustains us in the midst of hard times, but it's not practical. Like, what good is that for Aubrey in the midst of that? What good is God being on the throne actually doing for me personally in the moment? So our theology of suffering is just weak. And here's what I've seen through reading this passage is we Christians, this is for Christians because now we're in the part of Romans where he's addressing the Christian life, need a present, personal, practical theology of suffering. We need a present. We need a future, yes, but we need a present time. What's going on right now? A personal, what is God doing for me and through me because of this? I know he's helping others, because, but what's it doing for me? And then a practical, what, is this, what good is this for me? What's in it for me, Lord? I don't care that Josh is a better dad now because I can't have a kid. What about me? So that's where, this is where Romans lands very hard and very well. This is uh, what I want to talk about before we jump in, just so you kind of get a grasp of where we're at with Romans. So here's how it's laid out so far. Like I said, the first three, one through three, is you are not right in God's eyes. You are wrong. Three through four, you can be made right in God's eyes. So this is where we've been. You're a sinner. You can be made right. And four, three and four kind of ended with, here's how you're justified. You receive Jesus. Boom, you're now a Christian. And then five starts up, now what? So your friend comes to you and says, I'm a Christian. What do I do? You say, if you're me, you say, you read the Bible, you pray, go to redemption, 
listen to Caleb and uh, start serving in your church. There's the good. Here's what Paul does. You're a sinner. You're now a Christian. Here's what I want you to be absolutely 100% sure of, and it's your security. So five lays out beautiful three big truths. So last week Luke talked about you have peace with God. So you're going to doubt your forgiveness in the midst of life. And Paul says, before you start this Christian life, you have peace with God. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Another way to translate it, everything good about being a Christian is tied up in future wonderful promises. And rejoice in those promises constantly because you've been made right with God and now you can think about heaven and dream about heaven and long for the day when all pain's gone. That's at the core of being a Christian. You have a huge truth to bank your life on because some guy got out of the grave 2,000 years ago. Every promise that follows, we can be sure of. And then this, what I'm talking about today, what's going to make us doubt as we walk through the Christian life? And I think Paul has two things in his head. Suffering is going to cause massive amounts of doubt. If I'm a Christian, if God loves me, why is this going on? So three through five, what I'm going to hit today, in the midst of suffering, what security do you have? What is God doing? And the next week, whoever's preaching, it's going to talk about rejoicing in your reconciliation. So your suffering is going to cause you to doubt, and then your sin is going to cause you to doubt, you rejoice because God's brought you back. He's reconciled you. So today, we're in three through five. Here's the point. We need a good, good theology of suffering. Not a distant one, a present-day practical one that's going on right now. We all good? So let's read this. Verse five, five verse three. Not only that, so he's tying it back to the hope of the glory that we talked about last week, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Just so you know what those words mean. Rejoice means you take pride in or you boast. So your, your marriage is screwed up. You can't pay the bills. God says you take pride in that. Makes no sense. You boast. You don't have to cheerlead your way through it. You don't have to mope around like Eeyore. But in the quietness of your heart, you need to see that the trajectory that God has you on is really, really good. And you rejoice in that. You boast because he's got you. We're going to get to Romans 8, and he says, nothing will ever separate my love for you. And you rejoice, and you boast. And that looks different for everyone, so that's why I don't want to give. Here's how it looks to rejoice, because then we get legalistic. But in your heart of hearts, you trust him, and you boast, and you say, God, I know this is good. And you rejoice in your sufferings. What does this mean? Who's suffering in the room? The word suffering is the idea of pressure, specifically getting squeezed. So it's talking about olives getting squeezed and you get oil. So as your life is squeezed, however that may look, as God squeezes you, Robin and Brian, their kid has cancer. We got another follow-up email. They went to Denver to get treatment. Then they went here to get blood treatment. And then they go back and their other kids feel neglected. Brian's being sued currently in his company, and God is squeezing them. And Paul says, you rejoice. I was preparing the sermon in the office and just kind of write notes on the whiteboard, and Dale's our counseling pastor. And he came by, and he just said, make sure you answer the question, how we suffer, so everybody knows. So what does suffering look like in your lives? The things Dale wrote down, I think they are great big buckets that cover just about everything. We suffer emotionally. 
some of us extremely. We're on medicine, and we always have been. We're depressed. We struggle emotionally. Spiritually, your spiritual walk has always just been a grind. You've always doubted. It's always been tough. Your spiritual life is just angst-filled. Financially, makes, we don't need explanation. Physically, your body is breaking down. You're not the stud you once were. Your kids physically are suffering. And the last one is relationally. And this is one that Dale says he thinks hits hardest in the church, is you suffer in your relationships. So you're married to someone who doesn't believe the same things you believe. And that's squeezing you. Your kids aren't ending up like you thought they And God's squeezing you. Your kids are sick. God's squeezing you. And God, through the Apostle Paul, says you take pride in that. You boast in those moments where you're squeezed. What in the world? This makes no sense. Here's what Paul's going to tell us. There's four right now promises that you can bank on in your suffering. Why you should suffer well. Rejoice in your suffering. So what are the four rewards for suffering according to this passage? These are very short little snippets, so we'll go through them quick. Not only that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So the first thing we get is endurance. Another word is steadfastness. It's the difference between the Cardinals in the playoffs and the Steelers in the playoffs. Who won that game? Football fans? Steelers beat us in the Super Bowl. Cardinals got there, and you could tell they hadn't been there in a while. Steelers go like every three years. They had been there. They had stood the test of time. They were there. This was no big thing to them. The way to think about it in the Christian life is you look back and you see some meat on the bones of your Christianity. Tough times have popped up, and you look back and you see that you've persevered. God has been steadying you through this roller coaster of life. There's a great passage in Mark 4. So here's what it looks like not to endure. Jesus tells this parable, and I'll kind of paraphrase, but he's talking about when the gospel is spread, it's like throwing seeds on various grounds. You got the road, you got the path, you got good fertile soil, and he talks about the ground that doesn't endure. And he says, and they have no root in themselves, talking about the people who receive the gospel, go to church, go to summer camp, get saved, But endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So we got to get this first point. The first point Paul's making, the four rewards that we get from suffering well is like a domino effect. It's not like picking different ones that we want to do. The first one triggers the rest of them. So the first reward for us who suffer well in the moment is that we're going to persevere and we're going to endure. And our life, our Christian life, is going to be meaty. And it's going to be real. I mean, think about it this way. How long have you been in the Christian life? And as people come up to ask you, are you a Christian? Yes. Why? Because when I was 14, I accepted Jesus at a church service. Okay, you're now 72. What else do you have for me? You still need the conversion, but God's growing fruit on your tree. He's enduring you. He's persevering you. So you look back and you say, I've done it. I ran a marathon. 
my Christianity wasn't a 10-meter sprint. It was a marathon, and I've done it. What does this lead to? Endurance. Now, like I said, it's dominoes. We rejoice in our sufferings that suffering produces endurance. First domino falls, and endurance produces character. And this one's kind of tricky because it doesn't mean that the only way to make you more Christ-like is to put you through suffering, although that's probably the best way. The word here about character is it's a tested, proven character. So it's not a character based off never going through anything. It's a character based on the fact that you've been through that and you've passed the test. James 1, 2 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Same word. You're steady. You're persevering. You're enduring. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another way to say it, you may have character. Now, there's a big misconception in most religion, especially in Christianity, that going through trials is God's way of testing your faith. And that's not true. Because according to Ephesians 2, when I became a Christian... God handed me the gift of my faith when I received it. So God had my faith, he gave it to me, and now I'm a Christian based off this gift of faith that God has given me. You following with me? So now I have a gift that God gave me. He's fully aware that he gave it to me. Why would he put me through trials and test me? Is he trying to make sure that he actually gave you the gift? Here's what's going on. Mike Hagan, you a Christian? Say a little more confidently. Yes, sir. God at some point gave him faith. And Mike has faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to go through trials. And he's going to go through trials. He's going to look back and he's going to see that he passed the test. Not that God's looking down on him saying, yes, he did it. Holy Spirit. Can you believe Hagen of all people passed the test? Shut up, Hagen. It's so that Mike can look back and say, my faith is real. It's God's gift to us to put us through suffering so that we endure and we pass the test and we look back and our faith is real and it's rooted in something. We say, my faith is legitimate. It's not based off some church conversion that has nothing else to go with it. It's real and it's true. So when you suffer, God is testing you so that you look and you say, I really hold the real thing here. I am his. Amen? It doesn't sound fun, but how else is the God of the universe going to do this in our lives? I would love it if the way he could test us and grow us and endure us is by filling my life with cookies and good wine and vacations in San Diego. But for some reason, when life gets really, really good, most of us tend to neglect him. So he's saying... As you go through sufferings, don't see it as anything other than his love for you. He's trying to show you that you're really his. This is for you. I know you have faith. I gave it to you. I was there. This is for you. This is good news, huh? Next thing, domino, endurance, character. Let's read the next verse there. Not really verse, but section. 
Rejoice in our sufferings. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Next section. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Endurance, character, now hope. There's a great passage in Psalm that I always go to, and I'm going to use it with my kids as they start to grow in ability. But it says this, Psalm 147. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. You see what he's saying? God takes no delight in how good you are at what you're already good at. He gave you all those gifts. What he takes delight in is your hope in the moment of weakness. What you hope for in this life. Just because you're a great musician, God finds delight and he loves to watch you worship him. But he finds ultimate delight when we trust him and find our hope in him. Not in the strength of horse, nor in the pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love. So the third domino, you're going to endure, you're going to have character, you're going to be tested. God's grown your appetite for him. And now hope. You hope in him more than you ever did. And it's not based off wishy-washy feelings. It's based off a lifetime of loving him. It's not based off an apologetic, scientific defense of the faith and why Christianity is real and why the Bible can be trusted. Although that stuff is good, it's based off an experience that you've had with him along the road of your suffering. That's how he grows our hope. If he could have wired us differently, but we are knuckleheads. And we don't listen to him, and we don't hope in him, and we don't trust in him. So he's going to say, I know it doesn't seem like it, but this suffering is actually to produce in you more security in your relationship to me. I saw this firsthand. I went to this uh, pastor, youth pastor's conference. So it's a bunch of, you know, 20-something guys who don't really know what they're talking about. And we were talking about the next generation and their, their rejection of Christianity. So we're like roundtable discussion, trying to think of all the scientific, sweet little ways to nuance the faith and explain the faith so that somebody will get it. Well, let's talk about this. Well, the problem with the young earth, people don't really believe. They believe in science. And we're like getting in this heated debate. And there's one guy, Eli, my buddy, who's just sitting there like with a migraine. He said, Eli, what's up? He says, I just don't get this. Like, when I think about God and my relationship with him and who he is, I don't have to go back to a textbook. I just have seen him show up time after time after time in my life. So if you're asking me to go tell a generation that they need him based off some scientific evidence, I can't bring that. What I can bring is a lifetime of God showing up every single time, and your hope grows and you still have this scientific proof and reliability of Scripture, but the biggest thing in your heart is your appetite for the Lord because your hope has been expanded. And it's done through suffering. And I'm not going through any major suffering right now, but when I do, I'm going to come back to this. And I'm going to say, Josh, there was no other way in this moment to produce more hope in you. God knows what he's doing. And you're going to endure and you're going to get through it, and you're going to be tested, and you're going to see that you passed it. And at the end of this, you're going to have a deeper, more solid hope in the God of the universe. And specifically, you look back at verse 2, hope in the glory of God. Your longing will be less for this world and its money and its relationships and its comfort, and you will desire the next life more and more. 
Some of us desire heaven way more than others because we've been through suffering. And us younger guys think that this world's really going to produce more and more joy for us. And everything's breaking down. And we're going to be disappointed. And at the end of that, our hope should be grown. Last thing, we got a present personal hope in our suffering. What's the last thing we get out of this? Fourth one is God's love is poured out. Let me just read it again. This is a great verse. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us. It just increases our longing for him. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's what God's love has been poured poured out into our hearts. What that verb means is at one time when you became a Christian, God's unconditional love came on you. But there's this also this ongoing, God's love is still being poured out. It's being poured out. And what this passage is saying is in the midst of suffering is when God uses his love most in your life. So it's horrible. And nobody wants to choose suffering. Nobody. And yet God's saying in that suffering, you're going to experience more and more and more of my love. Just think about your Christian life in relation to marriage. I'm married to Aubrey six years now. So if someone came up to me and said, are you, are you married? Are you in love and married? Say, absolutely. Well, tell me why. See this ring? It's proof. You want more. Tough customer. There's my wedding certificate. What else do you need? Imagine if that's the response that you got someone who was in love in marriage every time you asked them. 30 years into it, are you in love with your wife? Do you need anything else? Yeah. And this is what suffering does. It creates an avenue for deeper relationship with God. Just like marriage. I am married because I have a ring on and there's a certificate that's signed by the city of Gilbert and whoever else that says, yes, you are married. And I am a Christian. I was saved July 4th, 2000. I am a Christian. How do I know that I'm still loved by God? Because I've been through suffering. I was there when my stepsister passed. I said, I'm not going to make it. And God said, I'm with you. When my parents split, when I've dealt with suffering other people are going through, I'm like, gosh, Probably my go-to line is, this world sucks. Just does. I shouldn't say that word, but that's the only way I know how to describe it. But in those moments, God has poured out his love on me, time after time after time. And he loves me. He loved me at the cross. He loved me when I got saved. And he loves me even more now in the midst of the suffering. Amen? I talked to a guy after last service, older gentleman has some grown-up kids who are going through a lot of stuff. And he said, thanks for clearing something up. I, this entire time, I was thinking that all of these issues were because God was mad at me. So you're to rejoice in your suffering because Paul says you're going to get all these benefits. You're going to have endurance and character and hope and God's love is going to be poured out. But the, the missing element in all this to make this possible in your life is you've got to rejoice in Christ's suffering. Here's what I mean by that. You need to rejoice and see that Christ really took all of God's anger. So every time you are suffering, it has nothing to do with God's wrath on your life. God is not a closed-fisted, angry judge anymore when you're in Christ. All of his wrath has been poured out on his son, Jesus. 
I read this blog about two years ago, and it just really solidified a lot of stuff in my head. And, he talk, and the, the title was, Jesus Drank the Other Wine. And it's out of the book of Mark. Don't turn there. But Mark 15 is where Jesus gets crucified. And one person comes up to him and offers him wine at the beginning of his crucifixion. It says, wine mixed with myrrh. And what that is in that day is it's like a children's Tylenol. It's going to ease the pain a little bit. Someone says, here you go, Jesus. Ease this pain. He says, no. This is my cup of wrath that I'm going to take. I'm not going to take any shortcuts. And then you read a little bit further. Mark 15, 36, another person offers him wine. And this wine's a little different mixture. What it's meant to do is quench your thirst. And he takes that one, and he quenches his thirst, and he prolongs his life for just a second or two. And the point of this blog was, Jesus did everything possible to maximize his wrath poured out on him. Let me say that again. Everything, every ounce of wrath, every bit of anger, every close-fisted punch that God could have thrown at you and should have thrown at you, Jesus took it all. So you are suffering right now, Christian, not because God wants to punch you and wants to prove a lesson that you screwed up when you were a parent back in your 20s. That wrath is over. Amen? The current suffering is not coming from a close-fisted God, but an open-handed, suffering Savior who took your spot. So we can suffer well. We can rejoice in our suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. He's doing something in you right now in your suffering. And I know it doesn't make sense, but the Word of God says it never comes back void. This is really happening right now in our presence. He is producing in you endurance and character and hope. And in the middle of all this, His love is being showered upon you. Because all the wrath Jesus took. Amen? Let's pray. God, so much of Christianity is just renewing our mind. Suffering is no different. It's probably near the top of the list in areas where we need to renew our mind. So make this truth real in our hearts. Our suffering as Christians is for our good right here, right now. And Jesus' suffering on the cross took all the anger so I can confidently look at my suffering and rejoice and to boast. It doesn't have to be showing. It doesn't have to be loud. But in, the, in my own heart, I know I can boast that you're doing something with this. And you're doing something because you love me and you're changing me, and you want me to know your love more. So God, specifically the people in this room who are suffering, be with them as you promise you are in this passage. Show them this passage coming to life right before their very eyes. God, I love you. Thank you for taking the horrible suffering and allowing me to go through the good suffering. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Suffering paves the way to relationship with God. It fans the flame of our faith, is what Josh said. And, and so I don't know where you're at exactly today, which part of that spectrum you're on, but we want to respond to that message and, and even in this moment begin to rejoice in our sufferings. 
So we're going to respond a couple of, of ways this morning. First, the team is going to come and they're going to lead us and we're going to sing. And singing is a very natural way to respond uh, if you want to proclaim joyful things. I know for me, when I get discouraged or when I get anxious, one of the things, even though I don't have a great voice, one of the things that encourages me is to sing. That's why we do that, as we encourage one another, as we hear each other's voices, and as we, we proclaim that God is good, even if it doesn't feel like it. So we're going to give you the opportunity to, to respond with singing. Uh, there's also, at the end of the service, going to be some people up here, up front, some leaders from our church, and they would love to pray with you. Perhaps you're going through a time of suffering or discouragement, and, and you need someone to talk to, or you need someone to pray with. They would love to pray with you. And so that could be a way that you might want to respond. Perhaps you want to grab your connection card and write out a way that you'd like our team to be praying for you this week. Some way that, that we would pray that, that you would have more joy in the midst of your suffering. We'd love you to do that. Write that out and, and put it in those offering boxes. And then we're also going to give you the opportunity to, to rejoice in suffering by celebrating communion. Communion really is a celebration. It's a rejoicing in suffering. It's a rejoicing in the suffering of Jesus. Not because we're, we're happy that Jesus endured all that, but because we're, we're thrilled, we're joyful about what he did it for. We're thrilled that the wrath of God has been fully absorbed by Jesus. Wasn't that good news to hear that this morning? That, that we, we, don't, we don't experience suffering from a closed-handed God, but from an open-handed Savior? That is so good. That's such good news. And Jesus went on the cross. Having lived a perfect life represented in the bread as his body, having lived a perfect life, then pouring out his own blood, not for sins he committed, but for sins that you and I committed. Having God's anger and wrath poured out on him so that we could be able to take the cup of communion and taste its sweetness. It was a bitter cup for Jesus. And as you taste that juice this morning and you taste the sweetness of it, take joy in suffering, knowing that God is not angry at you, but that he is with you. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ. And you have not yet trusted in Jesus, or you don't necessarily yet see that, that what he has done for you is, is so glorious as we're talking about. And if, if that's you, we're so glad you're here, and I hope you'll keep coming, and, and I hope that you'll talk with the person who brought you, or maybe come and, and talk with one of our leaders after the service. We'd love to, to talk with you about where you're at and what you're thinking. But for now, for communion, you just need to know communion's a celebration for those who are rejoicing in what Jesus has done for them. And so if you're not in a place where, where you feel that way yet, that's okay. We don't want to pressure you into doing this. We would prefer, actually, that you didn't. Instead, take this time and, and reflect on what's been said. and Maybe begin to ask God to make it clear to you. A team's going to come, and uh, when your heart is ready, you're going to be able to take communion. There's elements here in the corners, and there's one by the pole. This is a pretty full room, and so sometimes uh, the, it takes a little while to get through the line. Just be patient. Rejoice in the suffering of a long line if you have to. But when your heart is ready, we would love for you to respond with joy.